Father, be with us tonight as we open and study Your Word. Lord, we pray for a word in season. We pray that You would bring ready to our minds and recollection the right thing to say at the right time, but we recognize we can't give what we don't have. We can't offer out of our hearts what hasn't been implanted there. So tonight, Father, I pray You will implant Your Word in our hearts that it will be ready and available for us so that we can be doers of the Word and not hearers only, so that we have truth to speak at every opportunity. And we know only Your Spirit can do this, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that You will teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Chronicles 27. We're going to back up just a bit to chapter 26 and verse 21. For we left off Sunday with King Uzziah, who was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Yotam, his son, not Yoda, let's make sure we're clear on that. Yotam, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, has written. We have the book of Isaiah in our Bibles. We'll be testing that, checking it out tonight. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Yotam, his son, became king in his place. Yotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord, and the people continued acting corruptly. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively the wall of Ophel, Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah, and he built fortresses and towers on the wooded hills. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed over them, so that the Ammonites gave him during that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. The Ammonites also paid him this amount in the second and in the third year. So Yotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Yotham, even all his wars and his acts, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And Yotham slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. This Yotham is a good king, but not outstanding. You can list him among the kings who follow the Lord. I love what it says about him in verse 6. He ordered his ways before the Lord his God. He was a good king. He had a right relationship with the Father. But in this brief chapter and this brief mention of this king in Judah, a picture begins to emerge. At least one did for me this week as I was looking over these chapters we're going to cover tonight. A picture of doors closing. Not closed. But closing, as you read the story of Yotham and look from his father to his son, you begin to get, if you listen carefully, a sense that a door is creaking closed. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus told the Apostle John, He said to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now you Bible students know this letter to the church in Philadelphia 
is both historic and prophetic. We talked about this at length in the Revelation study, that each one of the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus had John write, specifically to those churches, have multiple application. That they are historic, real letters written by a real hand from a real Jesus to a real people during a real time in history. But they're also prophetic letters in that at least the last four of these seven letters to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, are descriptive and applicable to the church of the last days. Now I'm not going to go into this at length right now. I encourage you, if you want to study it more, go listen to the teachings in Revelation that are, that are on the website, chapters 2 and 3. It is absolutely fascinating when you go into that book to see how the seven churches, if you lay them across history, you see them in the church, the broader church. And you see that these letters apply historically and prophetically. But, but the first three churches of the seven are churches in history. I'm not just talking about Ephesus and, 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 and the others that, that, that were stuck in a place in time. I'm talking about in the broader picture that the letter to the church at Ephesus was to the first century church. Okay, The letter to Smyrna, to the persecuted church. And on down the line, the letter to Pergamum, to the church that began to adulterate itself with government. And you can follow this on through. But the last four, Thyatira... The letter to Thyatira is a letter to the papal church. And you can see it in history and how it, how it existed then. And how the papal church, the, the Roman Catholic church, exists today. Jesus said good things to them. He also gave some serious corrections that needed to be paid attention to. But that's one of the churches of the last days. It's around today. The church of Sardis, which we would call the dead church, is around today. The Church of Sardis that we would see in denominationalism. And I know there are some denominations doing good things. And there are some churches within denominations very faithful to the Lord and doing great things. But on the whole, the Church of the Reformation blazed up and died down. You can see this too if you read these things through. The Church of Philadelphia, the Mission Church, right around the 1800s when the church got to became very mission-minded and started sending... You know, as we prayed for Glenn and Kathy tonight, started sending people out, and not just from, from one state to the next, but international missions exploded on the scene. And this whole uh, letter to the Church of Philadelphia, where Jesus says, I put before you an open door, people began to believe that as truth. We have an open door for evangelism in the world, let's go. The mission church is still well and alive today. There are still people going, although not as much. I hear a creaking. <laughs> It seems like that door may be closing, and not because Jesus is closing it. And the last of the four churches is Laodicea, the people's church. That's what Laodicea means, the power of the people, right of the people. And the people's church seems quite descriptive today of much of Christianity that we see that is more about the people than it is about the Christ. Well, these churches are, are very interesting, and I mention them right now. I know we're in Second Chronicles, but we see a curious pattern in the timeline of these churches that seems to be following the same path of Judah and Israel. History will teach us nothing. We don't seem to pick up or to learn from what has already happened. We saw a great start in Israel Especially with King David. Now with Saul, it was kind of like starting the engine. He had to pump it a couple of times. But then David comes on the scene and Israel becomes a glorious nation. 
Even more glorious under Solomon, but there began to be some problems. And then we see division. Well, the church began that way. Greatness and wonderful and glory, and then there were some problems, and then division. And if you follow it on, there began in Judah and Israel a slow downward plunge. Interrupted by five great seasons of revival. We've we've looked at three of these so far, or at least two and a a third one tonight. We see these five seasons of revival under Asah and Jehoshaphat and Joash and Hezekiah and, and Josiah. Hezekiah and Josiah, we'll get to Hezekiah tonight. Josiah is coming up soon. So even though Israel and Judah seem to be headed downhill, on occasion there's revival. But then they get right back on that downhill slide, the downward plunge, until the velocity of that plunge becomes unstoppable. Are we on that same path? Is that where the church is headed today? Culminating in the Laodicea church, the lukewarm church, the people's church. For my part, I want to be Philadelphia. Amen? The church of the open door. The church whose door is open, but the church also who is going through that door and into the world. Not just sitting where we are. Taking our faith with us. I'll tell you one thing that on occasion is frustrating for me as a pastor is I'm here. And I hear the Lord saying go and saying, Rick, tell them to go. But I'm going to stay, so I'm just letting you know that right now. (laughs) I would go if God called. So far, what He's called is for me to be right here. Where has He called you to go? Has He called you here? Because we need mission work right here in the Northwest desperately. The people's church is rather strong in the Northwest. We need missionaries here. But we need people to go. Are we the church of the open door? You know, most churches begin that way. Most churches begin with a vision. Most churches begin with excitement and they get stirred up and they want to go. And no church seems to close its doors overnight. It's a slow creaking. The door is wide open at first, but after a while you start to hear that. Did you hear something? No, no, things are fine. Something going on? No, no, we're good. We're comfy. I tell you all this because Yotham is a king of obvious personal faith. But he was not a king with a great public faith. In fact, what we see in this man, he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. And yet at the same time, back in verse 2, it tells us the people continued acting corruptly. So what does that mean? It means he had a personal faith. He loved the Lord. And because of that, the Lord made Yotham mighty. But not the people. Yotham didn't go to temple. We talked about this Sunday. His dad, Uzziah, got leprosy when he tried to pray in the temple. And Yotham said, that's it for me. (laughs) I'm not going in there. So he decided not to go that way. There were two problems here. Two issues with, with this man of great personal faith, but obviously not much public faith. The first one is his spiritual influence never extended beyond himself. Are we that way? I mean, I don't want to come off judgmental tonight, but I'm wondering, are, are many of us that way? That we have a great personal faith, but it's personal. It's my faith. It's me and the Lord. I'm not one of those who's going to be out talking about it because it's a personal faith just between me and Him. Well, if that's the way you feel, your sphere of spiritual influence will never extend beyond you. 
2 Kings 15.34, the parallel passage to this tells us Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all his father Isaiah had done, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Because for Jotham, it was a personal faith. So his spiritual influence never extended. The second problem is he didn't go to temple. Therefore, why should the people go? The king doesn't show up. Why should we be there? Gang, the Lord in all His wisdom knew the people needed to be centered on Him, not only personally, but as a community, as a congregation, as in what we're doing right now. It's not just about two, three, four people meeting in a home somewhere, although that's important, and you've heard me say this before. It is also about what happens here when we meet as a congregation of people. The Lord knew that the people needed to gather in mass at the temple. He had feasts and festivals throughout the year to draw the people to Jerusalem so that they would worship together there at the temple. Those who lived in Jerusalem had the opportunity on a daily basis to go to temple, worship there, be taught by the teaching priests, and be involved. God knew going to temple restored the sinner's sense of forgiveness. As they watched those sacrifices and that blood, they recognized, that's for me. That's how ugly my sin is. And that's how gracious my Father is not to hold that sin against me. God knew going to the temple redirected a worshiper's heart Godward. You know, it seems to me the further away from church or from temple for the Jewish people that we get, the further away from God we get. The, the less our focus tends to be on Him. Don't you get that? Don't, on Sundays and Wednesdays, don't you just sometimes feel your head snapping back up to the Lord? And in between, all the cares of life begin to creep in. But man, you get here and boom, it is about Him. And you're reminded again. The Lord knows this. He knew going to temple not only restored the sinner's sense of forgiveness and redirected a worshiper's heart, but He knew going to temple revived the faith of the Jewish community in Mass. The congregation, the fellowship of Jews, as they worship together as one before the Lord. Now I'm saying this tonight because... There are those of deep personal faith who claim not to need to go to church. And I'm not doubting their faith. There are those who have a relationship that is deep and real and personal. Their prayer life, their Bible study, it's rich and full. Man, they're online every day downloading, listening to pastors preaching and teaching and they're in the Word and they've got it down. But my friends, when a person determines to go it on their own and to separate, even for a season, themselves from a church fellowship, doors begin creaking closed. Seem awfully sure of yourself, Pastor. I am. I've seen it too many times. And the Word tells us, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. You know what that means? He's coming. He said He's coming, and He is faithful to come. Bank on it. Count on it. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, i got to tell you, when I was a kid and I heard that verse, it was a guilt trip. Not forsaking the assembly of the saints. Those of you who missed last Sunday night, you're forsaking. Well... I realized in reading this that these verses were not written as the Hebrew writer was going over the attendance rolls of a local church. 
The writer of Hebrews, and I believe it was Paul, was not guilt-tripping for turnout. He was stating a spiritual truth. Let me read it to you again. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we do that if we're never together? How do we do that personally? You don't. You do it publicly. Like, I can't stimulate and encourage you to love and good deeds unless I'm with you. Unless we're together. Not forsaking our own assembling together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's happened in the church is we spend less time in congregational worship and fellowship than we ever used to. The Hebrew writer said all the more. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every single day, and I talked about this with the, the new building, if ever we build it prior to the Lord's coming, I said I would like the doors open every day. But every day is not too much. You know, Sean Hannity, I've shared this before, on his show says we only ask for three hours a day. <laughs> and he says it kind of tongue-in-cheek. But I hear that and I think, how many hours a day am I willing to give the Lord? Your personal faith, like Yotham's, may be mighty. But what about Yotham's son? What was the impact of his personal faith on his son, Ahaz? Well, we'll see in just a moment. But I need to put put it this way for you all, gang. What Paul talks about in Hebrews 10 is the stimulation of fellowship. Something that cannot happen on our own. Something we need each other to experience. This fellowship of believers needs your influence. Furthermore, your unsaved friends and family need to know that you're here. To believe that you believe what you say. Your children and your grandchildren need to see you here. What about Yotham's son? You know, your involvement in this in any church fellowship may surprise you. But even your faithfulness in simple attendance is not just about you. What is, I was thinking walking down here, what's the first thing that we think on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning? i got to get myself to church. Well, why? Because I want to be there. Because I'm encouraged when I go. Because I like to worship. Because I like to be in the Word. And guess what? It's all about me. And I'm not blaming anybody. I mean, that's just kind of how we think. We tend to think inside out, you know. We think starting with ourselves. When was the last time you thought, i got to get to church because someone there needs me to be there? i got to get to church because I have brothers and sisters that I need to encourage. That it's not about you. Oh, it is. The Lord pouring His Spirit, His Word into you, His heart into you, into me. But it's also about what happens when you're here to other people. I'm talking about being the church of the open door and a key influence of the church of the open door is your presence here. And so I invite you to start asking yourself, who needs me to be there Sunday morning? Lord, who who do you want me to connect with Wednesday night? Who am I going to worship to stimulate good deeds and love? I think that might be a good thing for us to start to consider. Is it any surprise that it was the hands of Yotham's own son that finally shut the door of the Lord's house? And this is why I say it was creaking closed during Yotham's reign. Look at chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel up north, 
He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hanam and burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Well, thank you the trees were green. That's nice. This is Ahaz. Arguably the most wicked king, save possibly Manasseh, in all of the kings of Judah. And his father had a good personal faith. His dad believed in the Lord, ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now, we've talked several times in the past about pagan sacrifice. And the kind of sacrifice that Ahaz got into here was Molech worship. The burning of sons, of children in the fire. On the iron-hot arms of Molech the idol, and his belly was a huge furnace, and they would put infants or children on those red-hot arms until they screamed and fell into the fire. That was the sacrifice that Ahaz engaged in. Absolutely corrupt, sick, and bizarre. The Valley of Ben-Hanam, it's also called the Valley of Burning, or the Valley of Tophet, because Tophet means drumming, and they used to beat the drums while these sacrifices were taking place. And Jesus used the valley of Ben-Hinnom to portray hell. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, If your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out, the right eye, and throw it from you, for it's better to you, for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for, you to, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And the word hell there, many times throughout Jesus' teaching, is Gehenna. Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley is still in Jerusalem today. And by Jesus' day, the the Hinnom Valley was no longer being used for human sacrifice, thankfully. It was a trash dump, a burning trash dump. A constantly smoldering trash dump where all the refuse and the carcasses of dead animals and, and gross, disgusting things would be thrown out of Jerusalem and there to be burned in the valley, the Hinnom Valley. And Jesus would say, that is the picture of hell. That's what hell is like. A burning, stinking, smoldering place where the trash is dumped. It's a fitting picture. A place of continual burning. Jesus described it as the outer darkness, where there will be, He said, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think about that. He called it the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, which tells us it wasn't prepared for us. It was not God's intention to send human beings to hell in the first place. He wants everyone saved. Second Peter 3.9 the Lord is wishing for not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's His heart. But think about hell for a moment. It is a place of eternal fire and outer darkness. Dark fire. A fire that gives no light. A burning. And a darkness you cannot see the hand in front of your face. Well, Rick, that's kind of scary. I mentioned hell because Jesus did, and often. I've told you before, He mentioned hell more often than He mentioned heaven. Why would Jesus, our Lord of grace, do that? Because He's the Lord of grace. Because warning, always as we said last week, precedes judgment and He wants people warned. I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to be there. I was asked on Sunday by a father, should I talk to my son about hell? At night, I sat in bed and we were talking the other night and he brought up hell and he wanted me to tell him about hell. And I didn't want to because I didn't want to give him bad dreams. And I said, well, you need to. Maybe not give him bad dreams. Tell him about hell in the morning. <laughs> you know, maybe that would help. And I, I'm not meaning to be graphic with our kids, but parents, you need to let them know what the truth is. You don't have to get all descriptive and explicit and horrifying, but, but you know, 
Give them what they're asking. What's hell? It's, it's eternal fire. And darkness and horror. It's, you don't want to go there. And praise God, He provided a way out. He provided a way home. Tell your children about hell and tell them that's how far Jesus went to save us. Well, Ahaz, for, him, for his part, was a hellish king. Verse 5. Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, that is Syria, and they defeated him and carried, him away, carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. He was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. Verse 6. For Pikachu, the son of Remaliah, slew it. Close enough, Pika. He slew in Judah 120,000 in one day. All valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zechri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maasa, the king's son, and Azrakam, the ruler of the house, and Elkanah, the second, to the king. The sons of Israel, Israel, these are Judah's brothers now, carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they also took great, uh, a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. And this is the sum total of Ahaz's pathetic rule. It will be constant throughout his short term in office. Invasion, subjugation, enslavement, slaughter. And all because he went after the kings of Israel. He sacrificed to the Baals and to the Molechs and to the Asherim. Because he chose to ignore, more than ignore, to rebel graphically against the Lord. And gang, you need to understand something. The Lord had warned the people of Judah that this was coming at least at least 16 years earlier. Watch this. Open up to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. You want to keep your finger there in 2 Chronicles 28. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to jump back and forth a couple of times here. I think the dogs are having some fun outside there. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Which tells us, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, I'm not going to go into, uh, again, what, what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord. It's a beautiful, wonderful vision that he got of, of the Lord in heaven. But the point is, in verse 1, to put a timestamp on this, it was in the year of Uzziah's death that Isaiah received this call to go to Israel and talk to Ahaz. So this is at the very beginning of his reign and there is warning at the outset before Ahaz starts to worship idols, before he goes to the pagan ways, the Lord gives him clear warning and it begins in verse 8. Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Well, doesn't God want them to return and be healed? Yes, that's the point. He's using a a sense of Hebrew sarcasm saying, Tell them, this is where they're headed. This is what's going to happen. And then I said, Lord, how long? That is, how long will this judgment go on? And he said, he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. Now he's talking about Babylon. The invasion that would come. Through Nebuchadnezzar. 
The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, which, by the way, was left by Nebuchadnezzar. A tenth of Judah remained in Judah. There's always, there's always been a Jewish presence in the land. The Lord has always kept a, rem, a remnant in the land of Israel. There has never been a time, even through all the dark days, where there were not Jews in the land. And so a remnant, 10%, stayed there when the rest were taken into Babylonian captivity. And it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. I'm maintaining my people, God said, but a terror is coming. A horrible time is coming. And this warning came at the beginning of the hellish rule of Ahaz. And it was a prophecy again of the ultimate judgment against Judah by the tool or by the hand of Babylon. Why didn't it come completely? Why didn't Babylon invade during the days of Ahaz? Because God is a gracious God. Because He continues to give His people opportunity and a chance to return to Him. There will be great revivals. We'll get on the front end of one tonight with Hezekiah. There will be yet a second great revival under Josiah. And after that, as I said before, the downward plunge gets just too fast and too strong. And they will go down as the people corrupt, they will go to devastation. Now keep a finger there in Isaiah. Go back to Second Chronicles chapter 28. In verse 9, and this is an interesting story, a little sub-story within the story of Ahaz, a prophet of the Lord was there, that is in Israel, whose name was Obed. And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria, and he said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. And you have slain them in a rage which has even reached heaven. Now you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves? Surely you do not have transgressions, or surely do you not have transgressions of your own against the Lord your God? Then some of the heads of the sons of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshilamot, and Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, arose against those who were coming from the battle and said to them, You must not bring the captives in here, for you are proposing to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, adding to our sins and our guilt, for our guilt is great, so that his burning anger is against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers and all the assembly. And then the men who were designated by name arose and they took the captives. They clothed all their naked ones from the spoil. They gave them clothes and sandals and fed them and gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all their feeble ones on donkeys and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers. And then they returned to Samaria. It's interesting what's happening here. The Lord stops His tool of judgment. Israel was His tool of judgment. And we see that very clearly as through the prophet Obed. He says, you know, this was of the Lord. And the Lord gave Judah into your hands, Israel, and so you are the disciplining rod. You're the tool of judgment. However, you are accountable for your actions. That's interesting to me. Assyria would come and, and destroy northern Israel. And the Lord would hold Assyria accountable for their actions, even though it was ordained of the Lord. Babylon will come and destroy and take into captivity southern Judah. And the Lord will hold the tool of judgment responsible for their actions. Well, why is that? Because God's judgment is perfect. 
Because he, ha- he alone has the right to punish and to discipline, but those who even are used of the Lord as punishers and discipliners are accountable for their behavior and their actions and their treatment of the people of God. What we see here, and this may be hard to grasp, it's a little difficult for me, I struggle with this one this week, but I believe we're seeing a, a unity point here of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. The sovereignty of God saying, my people will be disciplined and I'm going to have you do it. The free will of man, how they deal with that judgment and discipline. And it's always far more than what the Lord had indicated. Man always goes too far. And point that out because all the actions of man are held to account. And you can't get away from that. Well, yeah, you can. One way, through the blood of Christ. Otherwise, we are accountable for every single thing we have ever done right or wrong before the Lord. Everything. And we have that choice. You all know this. We have the choice to either stand on our behavior and all of our deeds or stand on the grace of God. I choose the grace of God. We're told in Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Now, jump back to Isaiah chapter 7. Watch what God says through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. Verse 1 of chapter 7, It came about in the day of ha- days of Ahaz, the son of Yotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pikachu, the son of Ramali, I just, I'm sorry, it just cracks me up, Pika. The king of Israel, they went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart, that is Ahaz, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They were terrified. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. And I'll just point out, the fuller's field was where things were washed and cleansed. And I think it's interesting that God sent Isaiah to meet Ahaz at the place of cleansing. Verse 4, Say to him, Take care and be calm, and have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. Now remember, Isaiah is talking to Ahaz here. He's bringing the wicked, evil Ahaz. God knows his heart. He's bringing this evil king words of comfort and hope and peace. If Ahaz will just believe, just trust me. God's saying it's going to be all right. Remember that happened with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat cried out, "What are we going to do?" And God, through the Holy Spirit, said, "You're going to be fine. Okay, really? Yeah, okay." So here's Ahaz. Thus says the Lord God. Isaiah says, "It shall not stand." nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now with another 60, within another 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. 65 years from then, let me just explain this. I have some dates here I do. The Assyrian captivity of Israel begins in 722 B.C. Okay, at this point, right now, where we're reading this chapter, Isaiah chapter 7, is 734 B.C. Twelve years later, Assyrian captivity begins. Israel starts to be taken out in mass. Okay? 
He says 65 years later, Ephraim will be shattered. Well, that would be 669 B.C. And that's absolutely true because by 669 B.C., Israel was so decimated and destroyed they would never return as a nation. In other words, shattered. You know, you can drop a piece of ceramic, like a bowl or something, and it can break in two or three pieces. You can get the super glue and put it back together. But when you drop a bowl and it shatters into little teeny tiny pieces and you can't, there's no repair. And that's what will happen to Israel. That's what God's prophesying. He's saying to Ahaz, don't be afraid of Israel because in 65 years, and I love how specific prophecy is, in 65 years, they will no longer be a player at all on the world scene. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, verse 9, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. He's saying clearly to Ahaz, here's the deal, man. Trust me. Have faith in me and you'll be all right. But if you don't believe me, you will not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This is a gracious God. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Nor will I test the Lord. It's incredible. God comes to Ahaz with compassionate words caring words, Ahaz responds with rebellious rejection. He's saying, I'm not going to ask God. I'm not going to ask your God, Isaiah. I'm not going to ask for a sign. In other words, I don't believe you anyway. God comes with salvation. Ahaz chooses condemnation. Verse 13, Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will now try the patience of my God as well? Verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. Ahaz heard that prophecy. Ahaz heard about Jesus. God with us. Emmanuel who would come ultimately and in spite of His people, He would come to save His people. In spite of the sin of man, Emmanuel was on the way. And we see in Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And there's your sign. <laughs> Here's your sign. Now the contrast is amazing. Ahaz is the king who sacrificed his sons on the arms of Molech. The Lord is the king who sacrificed His Son on the cross for our salvation. Does this word from the Lord through Isaiah do anything at all to the heart of Ahaz? Go back to Second Chronicles 28, verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. He rejects the help of the Lord. And he sends instead to the king of Assyria, whose name is Tiglath-Pilneser. Great name, Tiglath. We call him Tigger. <laughs> At that time they send to Assyria for help, verse 17, for again the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had also invaded the cities of the lowland and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh and Aijalon and Gederot and Soko and all its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo, great name for a village, with its villages. And the Philistines are settling now back in the land. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel. For he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. And so Tiglath, Pilneser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. 
Well, wait a minute. Ahaz cried out to Assyria for help. Yeah. And Assyria said, they're weak. Let's wipe them out. Let's go get them. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. Now, verse 22, in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus which had defeated him, and said, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. What an idiot! I'm sorry, but that is just absolutely stupid. But they, came, they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. His father didn't go to church. Ahaz shut the doors. You see the pattern here? This is where it goes. In every city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. Now before we get to Hezekiah, understand that Aram attacked and took prisoners. Israel slaughtered 120,000 of Judah in one day. The Edomites attacked. The Philistines invaded. Assyria, who he asked for help, turns around and attacks them. The Lord sends tender, caring, compassionate warnings through Isaiah, the prophet, and Ahaz says, I don't want to hear it. He was so messed up, Ahaz chose to fashion his faith not around his Lord, the God of his fathers, but around the faith of the pagans. And I've said this before, that's the way it works. We can either choose to fashion our faith around our Lord Jesus or our faith will be fashioned around the gods of the pagans. And Jesus put it this way in John 8.42. He said, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on My own initiative, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear My word. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. He's talking now, in Jesus' day, he's talking to the Jewish leaders. He's saying, your father's the devil. How can you say that? Because their faith was being fashioned by pagans, not by the Lord. He said, we're not trusting in the God of their fathers but in other gods. Why did they reject Jesus' truth? Because they already were fashioning their entire belief system around a lie. Ahaz closed the houses, the, the doors in the house of the Lord and the people now are spiraling out of control. Things are looking bleak. But suddenly, there is a grand reopening in Jerusalem when you at least expect it just when you thought it wasn't safe to go back to temple check this out chapter 29 Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Abijah the daughter of Zechariah he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done yes we're finally back to the gold standard here In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. And he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, 
Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken Him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. And they've also shut the doors of the porch and they've put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem and He has made them an object of terror and horror, of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. He says, verse 9, For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that His burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before Him, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and burn incense. And then the Levites arose. Skip down to verse 15, verses 12 through 15 are the names of the Levites, and I'm not even going to attempt them tonight. Verse 15, because there may be another Pikachu or something in there. They assembled their brothers, verse 15. They consecrated themselves, and they went to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord. So the priests went in and to the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and every unclean, unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord. And then the Levites received it to carry out to the Kedron Valley. There was a dump out there as well. And they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. Now, let me just explain to you. The first month, spiritually and religiously in Israel, is not the first month of the year. Okay, there's the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and that's earlier. In the, but the first month is actually the seventh month of the calendar year, but it's considered by God to be the first month because it's the most holy. And it's the religious month. So just keep that in mind. So it's the first day of the, of the first month that they began this consecration. They consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days and finished on the 16th day of the first month, which is actually the seventh. <laughs> then they went in to King Hezekiah and said, We've cleansed the whole house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the table of showbread with all its utensils. Moreover, all the utensils which King Ahaz had discarded during his reign in his unfaithfulness, we've prepared and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Again, the roots of revival, watered now by one man's faith, One king who went public with his faith and not just stayed personal, they sprout suddenly in Judah. Almost overnight, there is this revival under the leadership of Hezekiah. It is nearly instantaneous. And so Hezekiah joins the ranks of who I would consider to be the three greatest revivalist kings in the history of Judah, including Asa before him, Hezekiah himself, and Josiah after him. But we got to ask quickly the question, how did one come who was so good, how did he come from such wickedness? If his father Ahaz was one of the worst, how did Hezekiah become one of the best? And the only answer I have for you is someone took him under their wing. And I think it's interesting to note in verse 1 that both Mother Abijah and Grandpa Zechariah are listed. Grandpa's not usually listed with the kings. This time he is. Might this be the prophet Zechariah? When Isaiah was with him, that Isaiah did well as he was listening to him, possibly. But whether or not it is, whoever raised him, Hezekiah immediately set his heart on a passionate return to the Lord. This boy, he was raised right. Somebody got a hold of him. And they showed him the ways of the Lord. 
2 Kings 18, the parallel passage, says he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made 700 years earlier. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. And Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. Now you Bible students may remember Nehushtan. Sounds like a big name, doesn't it? It just means eh, a piece of brass. A mere thing of brass. That's what Hezekiah called it. He came in, he finds this bronze serpent that they had held on to, someone held on to it from the wilderness days, brought it in, it was there in the temple, and the people were offering sacrifices to it. That's just unbelievable. And so he broke it to bits. He smashed it to smithereens. Now who's can that snake in the grass? But if you want to hear more about that story... Check it out online. It's 2 Kings 18. We did a whole teaching where we just focused on that and how it got from the wilderness all the way into, into Judah and how it continued and what Hezekiah did there. 2 Kings 18. But let me just ask this quickly. Is there a symbol in Christianity like Nehushtan? Is there a symbol that we have taken for ourselves? The snake on the pole. Jesus said just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. What was Jesus lifted up on? The cross. Have we in the church made the cross Nehushtan? Has it become for us a snake in the grass? What are you talking about, Rick? I'm saying the cross is not the symbol of our focus or our worship. Jesus is. Well, but you take communion every Sunday and talk about the cross. That's absolutely correct. But we don't focus on the cross. We focus on Him who was on the cross. And by the way, who came off the cross and three days later resurrected, He is not still there. And it makes me shudder when I see symbols of the cross, especially that have a little man on them. As if Jesus couldn't get down. Our God, resurrected on the third day, is alive and ruling and reigning from the heavens and is coming back for us. And the cross, the cross... It's not a symbol we worship, nor is it one that we cling to. The Christ is. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of Me, not in worship of the cross of wood. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. So we worship Jesus Christ and no cross. And if you wear a cross, you know, whatever. I'm not going to make a judgment there. But if you're holding that cross when you're praying... You know, or you're kneeling before a crucifix and you're placing some great emphasis on this thing. It's Nehushtan. It's a mere piece of metal. A mere piece of wood. And it is not what we worship. There is no representation of God other than Jesus Christ Himself. He is the only representation. So now the house cleaning is done and the temple is ready. Verse 20. Then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary in Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar. Notice Hezekiah is doing the ordering, but he's not doing the priestly work. Unlike Uzziah, who tried to step in his grandfather and do the priestly work himself. Hezekiah knows the word, gang. He knows what needs to be done. He knows how it's supposed to be done. But he's encouraging and ordering the king, the priest, to take care of it and do it. 
Verse 22, So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar, and they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar, and they slaughtered the lambs also and sprinkled the blood on the altar. And then they brought the male goats of the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and purged the altar with their blood to atone for all Israel. For the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. I just remind you of the reason for this blood, gang. God started all these horrific blood sacrifices, a very bloody thing in Israel. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Atonement. The Hebrew word means covering. To cover your sin so that I don't see it. It's still there, but it's covered by this blood offering. Why is that, Lord? Because there's another blood offering coming that won't just cover, but will expiate, will cleanse completely. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And all of the offerings in Israel we've talked about before are simply a picture of the blood that would cleanse us of our sin, the perfect blood of Jesus Christ Himself. Now watch this, it just keeps getting better. Verse 25. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and with harps and with lyres according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. Watch this. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers sang and the trumpets sounded and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. What words would those be? The Psalms. They began singing the Psalms. So they sang praises with joy and they bowed down and worshipped. And then Hezekiah said, Now that you've consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few. So they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brothers the Levites helped them until the work was completed, until the other priests had consecrated themselves. See, they're they're actually getting ahead of themselves. They're moving so quickly and they're so excited and there's such a sudden revival here that there's not enough people to do all the work that needs to be done. But they're moving forward anyway. And it tells us in verse uh, 35, there were also many burnt offerings with the fat of the peace offerings, with the libations for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. Now we flew through that chapter on purpose because the key word here is suddenly. Suddenly, everything wasn't completely perfect. Everything wasn't totally restored. Some of the priests were not appropriately consecrated yet. But the return to the Lord here in Judah is almost instantaneous. And I think that's wonderful because it's just like that with Jesus. 
Hear me on this, gang. What takes us years to corrupt and close down, to destroy and desecrate, takes Jesus a heartbeat to restore. We can spend a lifetime messing it up, and in a moment, in a breath, Jesus says, it's all good. Revival. Psalm 80, verse 19, O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause Your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. His restoration is sudden far faster than we think possible. A lot of people delay coming to the Lord because they think it's just going to take so long to get all this cleaned up. No, it won't. Because He is a fast cleaner. He works like nothing else. His restoration is sudden. We need to remember this, especially, and let me talk to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are slogging through the darkness and we're praying for family members and they are just not listening. And we're aching over friends and they are not paying attention. And months turn into years and we start to wonder, is there any hope? Will they ever turn to the Lord when it seems that the message is completely lost and no one's going to catch it? Remember, God restores like that. His restoration is sudden. The apostles thought it was all over. They thought they were done, the hope was gone, the dream was dead, and immediately, suddenly, Jesus was there. And I I don't know this for a fact, but I have a feeling on the road as Peter was returning, that when Jesus caught up with him, he tackled him and shouted, Surprise! Because the restoration of Jesus Christ is instantaneous. And it may take us years of faithfulness, decades of prayer, a lifetime of holding fast our confession of hope. But when restoration comes, mark my words, it comes quickly. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. I mention that verse because the word soon trips people up. They think, well, Jesus told that 2,000 years ago and nothing happened soon. Well, it's not a good translation then because the phrase is in taxi. Which is easy to remember. It's like being in a taxi. And that usually is pretty quick. (laughs) Pretty crazy. The Greek phrase in taxi literally means suddenly. Behold, I am coming suddenly. I am coming instantaneously. When I come, it's going to be like that. It's not going to be a slow growing of light in the sky and we're like, oh, you think Jesus is coming? Could be here in about 20 years or so. You know, it will be sudden. Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly. Quickly is the same word in taxi. Sudden quickness. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And speaking of suddenness, Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which people can't even measure how fast that is, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Because when the Lord restores, He does it quickly. Now hang with me, chapter 30, verse 1. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Did you see who he's writing to? Who's Hezekiah writing to? Israel. Not Judah. He's king of Judah, but he's sending letters to Israel. The same people who, in Hezekiah's lifetime, by the way, massacred 120,000 people of Judah in one day. These were the people who still had some of their sons and daughters and mothers and wives in captivity. Hezekiah writes them a letter inviting them to Passover. 
Verse 2, For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. Since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus the king was right in the sight, the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, that would be in the far south, even to Dan in the far north, that they should come to celebrate the Passover of the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. It had been at least 200 years since all Israel had gathered together to celebrate Passover. 200 years. Passover had fallen into neglect, at least in terms of all 12 tribes joining together, and Hezekiah saw the value of the whole church. Sorry, the whole congregation of Israel. Hezekiah recognized the value of the assembly of all the people of God. Now there are two little problems. A calendar problem, and that the Passover was supposed to be celebrated on the 14th of the first month, which was the month of Nisan. Nisan is the seventh month in the Israeli calendar, but it is the first month to the Lord because it's the most important. The month of Nisan, the month of Passover, that's when the people left Egypt. And God passed over them and brought them out in rescue. And Passover is supposed to be celebrated on the 14th of the month of Nisan, not the 14th of the second month, which is ER, the eighth month, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the, of the civic calendar. But the Lord plans ahead. And what Hezekiah and the people in putting it off one month did was biblical because God knew it needed to be said. Watch this. Numbers chapter 9, verse 10. Speak to the sons of Israel and say, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean, because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover of the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it. God knew a time was coming when they were going to need to get cleaned up and they would need some extra time. And he gave it to them in the book of Numbers. And so when Hezekiah comes along, he says, you know what? We have biblical precedent. We can celebrate it next month. Let's get this house clean. Let's cleanse these priests. Let's pull it together. So there was a calendar problem, but fixed by the Lord ahead of time. And there was a reception problem. You might have expected. Verse 6. The couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Gang, by now Assyria has already dominated Israel. So they're already off in captivity when this letter is being circulated, at least most of them. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers, verse 7, who are unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers, so that He made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that His burning anger may turn away from you. Hezekiah is offering restoration and forgiveness and an opportunity to come back to God. For if you return to the Lord... Your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn His face away from you if you return to Him. That is a key element, gang, even in our faith today. God will not withdraw or withhold grace from anyone if we will turn back to Him. But you've got to turn back. You've got to repent and return to the Lord. For as long as we stand in rebellion, He can't be gracious to those in rebellion. And so we see this in this chapter. 
And so, verse 10, the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Celebrate Passover with you guys? Are you kidding me? Pretty stupid. Pretty amazing. Israel by now had heard from the prophets like Micah and Nahum and and, and Joel, but they would not listen. And Assyria came and devastated them, and now when a second chance comes, an opportunity to be saved, they laugh it off. And as we talked about last week, the hardness of the human heart is astounding. Revelation 16.11 says, They will blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. It's amazing. But just know... Gang, anytime you determine to follow the Lord wholeheartedly and invite people to come to the celebration of what Passover really means, which is, which is the Lord passing over our sin through Jesus. Anytime you determine to be public with your faith and not just personal, you're going to receive some scorn and some derision and some mocking and some laughing. But Jesus said, blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Matthew 5.11 Now there were a few in Israel who humbly accepted the invitation. Verse 11. Nevertheless, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And now many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very large assembly. They arose and removed the altars which were in Jerusalem. They also removed all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kedron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th of the second month. And the priests and Levites were ashamed of themselves and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood at their stations after their custom. According to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests sprinkled the blood which they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to consecrate them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. Uh Uh-oh. Is that a problem? Not so. Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God the Lord God of His fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. I love these little nuggets of truth. We see once again right here that God is not concerned, even with Israel, He is not concerned with religious observance and ritual. He is concerned with the heart. And these people from all over the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, as they came together, if they came together with their hearts ready for the Lord, then for the Lord, that was what He wanted. Even though they were impure, not consecrated, standing outside of the law, Hezekiah said, Oh Lord, if their hearts are right, and God said, That's what I'm looking for. A right heart. A good heart. Romans 2.29, Paul said, He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. So I remind you not to get hung up on outward symbols because God looks at the heart. That's what you present to the Lord. Psalm 51.17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 21 
So the sons of Israel present in Jerusalem celebrated the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great joy. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments to the Lord. And then Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good insight in the things of the Lord. So they ate for the appointed seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. And then the whole assembly, I love this, decided to celebrate the feast another seven days. They're having such a good time. They said, do we have to go home? Can we just keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. It's revival, gang. (laughs) So they celebrated seven more days with joy. Verse 24, For Hezekiah king of Judah had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, And the princes had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep and a large number of priests consecrated themselves. Watch how this ends here. All the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel, both the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those living in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. And then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to His holy dwelling place. And I love how it says, not to the temple, to heaven. I wanted to take you through that whole picture tonight. I know we covered some ground, big ground here. But the purpose was this. We began tonight actually with Uzziah, the king who became leprous because he went into the house of the Lord and put all the attention on himself. We followed that with his son Yotham, a good king, but who wouldn't go to church. And his son Ahaz, who closed the doors of the temple completely. But we ended up with Hezekiah. But not just Hezekiah, personal and alone with his face, face before the Lord. Hezekiah and the whole congregation, not even just of Judah, but of all Israel. For the first time in 200 years, there is a unity among all the people. And it's absolutely astounding. These people are wholeheartedly assembled in Jerusalem. They're filled with great joy. But you notice back earlier in the chapter, some refused to attend. And they missed out. Some lost out. This is where we're going, gang. To a great assembly. We are going to be part of a vast, wonderful congregation of the Lord. That's what we're headed for. Hebrews 12.22 You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, not little groups, myriads, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is where we're going. Revelation 19.6, John says, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And so i got to tell you, if you don't like going to church now, (laughs) what are you going to do then? Because we're going to have church for eternity. Now, it'll be vastly better than the best of our Sundays, than the best of our Wednesdays here, no doubt. I mean, we're not going to worry if God goes on and on and on and continues covering chapter after chapter. It's going to be cool because it's Him. But gang, this is where we're headed. And there is, there is something godly, precious, holy, and anointed by God when the church assembles together. When the people gather together 
in corporate worship and fellowship, breaking bread, praying, listening to the teaching of the Word. Something that cannot happen anywhere else. People are affected, other people, by your choice to be here or not to be here. So as I said earlier, this Sunday, when you wake up and you think about coming on over to the barn, why don't you ask the Lord, who am I supposed to go see this morning? I know I'm going to see you. Who am I going for today other than myself? And finally, note this. There is another who is personally impacted by your attendance. And it's the Lord. Where two or three are gathered together, Jesus said, I'm there. He's here. He enjoys your being here. He wants to be in attendance actually with you. Hebrews 2.12 And I'm not even going to try and explain this to you tonight because I'm not sure I understand it completely. But Jesus so loves His people that He calls them His brethren and He says, I will proclaim your name. Uh, Jesus, God, is going to proclaim the name of God the Lord. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Brethren, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Which means, unless I'm reading it wrong, He's going to step down from the throne and walk among us and be singing along, glorifying God with us. And I believe He does that here. That Jesus joins in the worship with you and with me. And I think He misses us when we're not here. And I pray we never lose sight of the joy of the congregation with our Lord Jesus right here among us. I pray we understand that. And we come here to see Him. And we come here for others. And in turn, I'm telling you, you'll be blessed too. Let's bow. Lord, we realize we're coming to a great assembly and we also realize that You are coming and will come suddenly. And I don't know of anything more exciting to me than that thought right there. That You're going to come suddenly. We will be translated, raptured, changed, caught up, whatever we want to call it, in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. We will be out of our physical, mortal bodies, these bodies changed and transformed and glorified to be with You And once that happens, we will never leave your side. I love that promise. And we will gather together as a congregation. And it will be all worship 24-7 right into eternity. Lord, until that time, I pray that you would allow us the privilege, the honor, to be the church of the open door. Keep these doors open, Father. And whatever may happen to me or any of us here at the bridge, keep these doors open until Jesus calls us home. And may we have, again, the privilege of having an impact for the kingdom right out of these doors. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.